The following program was made possible by Ward's Lawyers. Find us at wardlegal.ca. Hello there, my name is Denny Grignot. I am the host slash producer slash official typist slash coffee pourer for this program. And on this installment, episode 41, Medical Officer of Health Dr. Natalie Bocking on why we shouldn't ignore the seasonal flu even if it's super easy to forget, given that other virus, eh? Those stonewall fences east of Kirkfield are long and compelling, and so is their history. You'll hear how and why. Nancy Payne tells us about an upcoming panel on diversity, which she's hosting on behalf of the magazine in which she works as an associate editor. You can guess what monthly mag we're referring to, right? My favorite hockey analyst, la première étoile, in my estimation. Owen Hargrave of Cameron drops by again to chat about the league, his fave team, and how the new season measures up, and how it's affecting him personally. This is the show where we use effect as a verb, not impact. The Advocate Podcast, stories from Kawartha Lakes. A few episodes ago, you accompanied me on an I Spy scavenger hunt sponsored by the city of Quarth Lakes. And one of our stops, you'll remember, was Balsam Lake Road, which features literally more than three kilometers of stone wall fences. Some are in need of repair, but most are still standing strong and pristine as they would have been when they were built more than 100 years ago. Well, we did some in-depth research on the history of these stone walls, actually, we got a call from a descendant of the man who commissioned their construction, George Laidlaw. Doug Patterson is George's great-great-grandson. Doug and his wife Donna now call that historic property, Fort Ranch, their home. A home the amateur historian is dedicated to preserving and honoring in the name of his ancestor, who played a big role in developing that area in the northern part of Kawartha Lakes. So he did much more than just commission stone fences. You'll hear all about that as Doug tours me through Fort Ranch. This is the Laidlaw brand. Um, so we thought we'd put that over, had this made, put this all over the front door as you come in. George, uh, his, his thought when he settled here after uh, retiring from the railway, semi-retiring from the railway, is he would breed cattle and sheep that he brought from mostly the Jersey and Jersey Islands. And, uh, and then he bred them here. And so it became the, uh, the Fort Ranch. It's a longhorn bull yeah. and it, with an arrow through it. That's so what's correct. the significance of the ear, arrow? We, we don't actually know where this came from. Okay, well, we do know next... that it was a Laidlaw brand, but we don't know who devised it. Well, no. that, that's next year's project. Okay. <laughs> that, that, yeah, I, I have more research to do on, on, on lots of things. This unique wallpaper here is the wallpaper from the room we're standing in right now. All this blue glass was on a window right here from the same place in the original building. And you put so, it in a nice frame there so that people my, can see what it looked like. This is my wife's idea. She she salvaged this and she wanted to keep, you know, all sorts of, of different parts of the old building retained in the new. So I'm the historian, but she's the creative. Uh, so back in the 1800s, there was no plumbing, obviously, and every room would have had a set of washing pottery. The new part and the old part is every single room has a set of washing pottery that was, all, was laid law pottery. This is stuff that my ancestors used 150 years ago, and that's pretty cool. What's your relationship to it? Because for somebody like me, if I bought this somewhere at an antique sale or an auction, I'd go, this is a really nice antique. Clearly, your relationship to this is different. How would you describe it? 
Yeah, I, I, I think there's a real closeness to it, and you just you can just pick something up and, and look at it and, and, and do a little research on it too, so I've done a fair bit of research on where all this came from, and, and sort of to say, hey, this is, this is uh, stuff that was actually used. It wasn't just there for show. They actually got up or had, you know, somebody would get water for them. They'd get up, and this is how they would do their, do their cleaning and their washing. And, uh, and that, you know, brings you back to that day and those simple times when they didn't have plumbing. Uh, when we tore the latrines down, this was the barn board, the wall board, on the left side of the double. It's, it's carved initials, some of them quite ornate. This is James William Laidlaw. Um, this is the Laidlaw brand. You can see the Longhorn um, uh, with the arrow through it. Charlie Edward Laidlaw is my great-grandfather, uh, Elizabeth Emma Laidlaw, um, this is 1877, 1879. So, so this, you know, barn board is more than just a picture. This is actual carving art that my ancestors did, uh, probably around 100 to 120 years ago. Anyway, so this alcove is kind of the transition into the old part. There's 23 of these chairs. Uh, throughout, spread throughout the cottage, virtually some in every room. Again, they're from the 1800s. And, and again, my, uh, my ancestors sat in these chairs for the, had their dinner. We have a lot of photographs. And so when I look at some of the photographs, I can, I can sort of translate that and, and sort of say, hey, you know, you know, this person walked to this place, got on this horse, went out in this field, and, 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 and was doing these activities. And, and uh, yeah, I think about that a fair bit because, you know, that's one of the things that makes it real today. Fort Cottage sign that you see there with a bullet hole in it, which is interesting that someone thought it was a good idea to shoot a bullet hole through it at some point, is from the original building. This okay, take me back to the bullet hole. As, as a historian, even sure. an amateur one, what, what did you learn about that? Well, I, I can tell you, when you look at a lot of the photos that we have, uh, our, my relatives from the 1800s carrying rifles was common. They're on horseback, common. Right, rifles common. So the fact that somebody shot a bullet hole through that to me is not a big surprise after having looked at, at looked at all of the photos. And uh, because you know this, that was how you lived in the 1800s. You probably your rifle was handy in case something came by and you you had it for dinner. George wanted the railways. He felt that we needed the railways to open up the hinterland and also to bring raw materials into the cities or towns back in those days and take finished goods back out to the to the country. And also then the liquor company said, hey, you know what, we're not doing very well transporting our booze on, on horse and buggy on the, all these bad roads. So we want the railways because we want to put our, our, all of our liquor on the railways and transport it very safely. And George was very close to Goodrum and Wartz who actually first employed him as a grain buyer. Genealogy is certainly a, a, a popular thing now. I mean, with the, you know, spit into an envelope, mail it away. You've traced your lineage long before that was available and, and, and in a much different way in many ways. So how do you think your relationship to your family differs than if you just spit into an envelope and mailed it away? Um, well, I mean, I just have so much history that, that you can actually see and touch that, uh, that it's, it's very tangible. I'm very much a visual person. And, uh, and so if, if I can't see something or touch it, I, I don't really fully understand it. So wh when I first got into the family genealogy, it was actually when my great aunt Jean... Laidlaw, Jean Shields, um, passed away. She gave her hand, mostly handwritten and typed uh, research of the Laidlaw family, which was extensive, especially for those days. Uh, she gave that to me. She gave that to my mom. My mom gave it to me because she knew I was interested. And I started right then. And that was in uh, 1980s. Mm -hmm. And this is my first, on the wall here, is my first attempt at a, at a family tree. I mean, it's nice to know the dates, you know, and where someone was born. But... Um, 
the more fascinating part to me is what did they do? What did they do? What was their personality? My uncle, uh, great uncle, Colonel George was shot in the leg in uh, South Africa in the Boer War. You know, what was that, what was that like? And, what, and then, and, and George Laidlaw um, fell off a horse and injured his leg and walked with a limp for the rest of his life. You know, what was that like? And these are things I'm learning about the family that to me is the most interesting part. How much of a balance is there here, Doug, between you wanting to honor your ancestors and make it their place, but also make it your place and, and your family's place? Where, where do you draw that line, that balance between those two? Yeah, you know what, we're kind of, we're kind of making that up as we go. And uh, because we're, we're, I'm still digging through artifacts, so I haven't even read through, you can see the boxes here off to my right, I haven't even gone through everything yet. So that is a work in progress. Um, my wife Donna is very good at at, at tempering my enthusiasm, and uh, she's very practical. She understands how things should be. She says we don't want the place to look like a museum, but it has to have that kind of museum feel to it. And but let's keep it into one area, which is a really super idea. And and so that when people walk through it, it would look like what it looked like 150 years oh, ago. Oh, it does, and I feel yeah. that right now, just coming in here, I know that I'm, I feel like I'm in a completely different room in many ways. Yeah, this is, yeah, and you can even smell it a little bit. I mean, because yeah. the, there's there's no air conditioning or heat in here. These floors are 150 years old, so everything's got, you can drop a marble, that's what we like to say, you drop a marble anywhere in this building, and it will roll off somewhere. <laughs> it won't stay where this it is. is. My, uh, my grandmother's, um, chair for when she was little and we had I had this or I restored it and then had the uh, caning done and you can see so if you're you want to do this you can pull it up oh now it's a high chair and then you can pull it up again and there you go now it's a high chair hmm. and this is this is a, a dates around 1900 did you feel a responsibility um to Doug to keep all of this stuff the canes the the high chair did you feel a responsibility to George and his family? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And not just keep it, but we're restoring this. Why? Why did things. you feel that responsibility? Well, uh, I think if you, don't re if you don't act now and restore when you can, it just, things just keep deteriorating further. I've got to be honest with you, Doug, a lot of people feel a little bit like their privacy is being invaded, and yet you're just kind of swinging the doors open going, sure, let's talk about it. Yeah, for the most part, it's, we talk about the walls. Because people driving by, that's what they see. They don't really know anything else. And, but if they're local, like from up the road or just anywhere around here, they'll say, well, was, is this George Laidlaw's place? Are you a Laidlaw? And then, they, then they, if they want to know more about the Laidlaws, then I will at times bring them through. You're not but, tired of those people knocking on your door to find out about that? No. How come? Uh, I don't know. It could be my personality. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I don't know. I'm just that kind of person that, that likes to share and get it out there. It's, it's, it's uh, kind of second nature to me. Hi, I'm Doug Patterson from the Fort Cottage on Balsam Lake. And you're listening to the Advocate Podcast, Stories from Kawartha Lakes. A little later in the program, Doug Patterson shares the history behind the impressive stone fences his great-great-grandfather, George Laidlaw, commissioned on Balsam Lake Road more than 100 years ago. And how and why he dedicates so much time to preserving them as they would have looked in the late 1800s. We are brought to you by Ward's Lawyers. For all your legal needs, go to wardlegal.ca. That's where you'll find the many services that Jason and Carissa Ward and their team offer. The yearly flu shot, which we get right around this time of year, has kind of taken backstage in many ways to the COVID vaccines center stage. 
And one doesn't need to be a medical expert to recognize that the pandemic's strict safety measures, especially last year, had much to do with a less severe regular flu season. But it's not like the early flu is a thing of the past. It still resurfaces. So what can we expect in 2021-22? Keeping in mind that most of us have already had two jabs of the other stuff, Dr. Natalie Bocking is the Medical Officer of Health for the Halliburton Court, the Pine Ridge District Health Unit. She joins me on the line now. Dr. Bocking, thanks as always for coming on the uh, on the program. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, you don't have to look too far to find reputable epidemiologists in, in, in reputable media, and they're often quoted as saying that uh, they're warning us that this flu season could potentially be deadly and even more severe than last year. What do you think we should be prepared for, especially in, in a less urban setting like the one we live in here in Corth Lakes? When we look to the fall, uh, we know that last year uh, we didn't see much influenza activity because there was very little social interaction. We had lots of public health restrictions in place. This year we know is different. We are, we're seeing the provincial government move to actually e further ease some capacity um, restrictions associated with with locations where people can gather. And I think it, it's just really common sense to think then that once influenza virus starts to circulate, it will have an easier time spreading this year than last year. But compared to previous years, uh, it, it, will it will it be? Is there, are we talking about exponential growth here, or are we just thinking of a flu season? Uh, akin to the one in 2018-19, or can it be worse than that, given that there was very little influenza last year? So I think there's still a couple of things that position us um, to do okay this season. So one is that people are still following other public health precautions. So masking, uh, washing your hands frequently, staying home with, with your sick. Those are all things that are going to prevent um, influenza from spreading also. I think if people are able to, to receive their flu shot, that will also help significantly. So I, there's certainly a, the potential, but I think that um, if we continue to use the tools that we have to prevent it, uh, hopefully the season won't be as bad as some others might be predicting. It does seem like it's been a bit of a mixed blessing in many ways, the strict safety measures of the past 19 months. It's uh, it's, it's it's meant fewer infections, but I, I wonder if it's also made people forget about the seasonal flu or just treat it less seriously because COVID has, as I mentioned, center stage, has taken center stage. I, I think uh, I think that's a good point. Uh, and we're seeing it not just with influenza virus, but other respiratory viruses. Um, we, we do have outbreaks right now, whether it's in daycares or long-term care homes that are caused by other respiratory viruses, not COVID-19, but we kind of forget that they, they happen. So we're re-experiencing this kind of normal um, activity that we see every fall associated with coming indoors and more viruses circulating. I always wonder if there's such a thing as vaccine exhaustion at this point. I mean, most of us have already had two shots. How do you convince people to roll up their sleeves again for arguably something that they may see as not as severe as COVID-19? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that we, we need to look at vaccines. You know, yes, they are a bit of an inconvenience sometimes to, to go out and, and receive. Yes, sometimes they can cause some pain in the arm or, or other side effects, but they're a very easy tool and very important 
safe and effective way to prevent infection. And if we look at our routine childhood immunizations, kids are, are immunized against quite a number of infections, viruses and, uh, and bacteria when they're young, uh, because we know that uh, vaccines work and they can be given, um, you know, several close to each other or at the same time. With all of the discussions around vaccination in general, uh, people might be, be hesitant or they might be concerned about, can I receive the flu shot at the same time as COVID-19 vaccine or close together with COVID-19 vaccine? And what's recently been um, communicated by NACI, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, is that uh, we can administer a flu shot and a COVID-19 vaccine at the same time. It doesn't matter when you received your COVID-19 vaccine. If it was three days ago, a week ago, a month ago, it's safe to receive your flu shot. Uh, and if you happen to have received your flu shot, it's then safe to receive your COVID-19 shot a couple days later, a week later, whatever the time interval is. Right. For, but for that person who can who can process all of that and knows that it's the right thing to do, I just wonder if there is that, that contingent of people going, oh, I'm so tired of rolling up my sleeve. I've done it twice already in the last two and a half months. How do you convince those people that, but we need you to go into your pharmacy. We need you to roll up your sleeve again. Mm -hmm. I think I'd, I'd remind people that we have had influenza seasons where people have been very ill. Uh, people are hospitalized in ICU uh, and uh, deaths associated with influenza. We know that there are populations that are more vulnerable. So the elderly, but also infants, young children and people with immune compromising conditions. So all of those same reasons that we've asked people to get COVID-19, we encourage people and ask them to get their influenza shot as well. It's a simple thing to do to go to the pharmacy uh, that one last time for an additional vaccine this fall, uh, but it makes an immense difference in uh, helping to keep the community safe and our, our loved ones and family members safe. Okay, well, maybe just finally on a more positive note, is there a chance that uh, the skeptics are wrong, that the pandemic has actually made us more ready and willing to embrace the flu shot that we're we're in the game now and we're fine to embrace it you know what i think what we've learned from from anything from this pandemic it's that uh, things are always changing and we're learning as we go i think that there are people that are seeing and really understanding the importance of vaccine and preventing infectious diseases and are supporting that and encouraging their family and community to get vaccinated uh, and I, I look forward to seeing more of that in the next couple of months. My name is Maria Francis from Ward's Lawyers in Lindsay, your official sponsor of the Advocate Podcast, Stories from Kawartha Lakes. The Advocate Podcast is 100% local media and part of The Advocate Online and, of course, The Advocate Magazine. But we are more than just media that you can read and listen to. Thursday, October 28th at the Pie-Eyed Monk in Lindsay, The Advocate Magazine is hosting Diversity in Municipal Politics, a panel discussion. It will be moderated by Nancy Payne, Associate Editor of The Advocate Magazine and occasional contributor to our program. She joins me now. Hey, Nancy. Hello there. Okay, explain the purpose of uh, the panel discussion, why the Advocate magazine decided it wanted to produce it. Well, it really came from publisher Roderick Benz and uh, looking at the idea that the municipal election is really about a year away. And 
if you look at the composition of our council right now, and this is no reflection on the councillors themselves, but it's a lot of older, in many cases retired, it's all white, there's only two women, um, and just the way things are set up, you kind of have to be retired or self-employed to make it work for the most part. I think one councillor has uh, a re what we call a regular job, but... Uh, so the council is not especially diverse. And that was really apparent if you were watching some of the council meetings online on a, on, on a Zoom platform when you saw all the squares. It, it, it becomes glaringly obvious just seeing all their faces. Sure. Literally. And again, it's no reflection on them as individuals. But I don't know, you've probably heard the saying, nothing, uh, nothing about us without us. And so, or the, I think it was Kim Campbell who said, you know, if you're not at the table, you're going to be on the menu. So the idea that at any level of politics, but honestly, especially at the municipal pol political level, you have to reflect the community you serve. And people might say, well, we're not an especially diverse community. Well, first of all, there are a lot of ways to think about diversity. So there's obviously gender, there's ability, there's uh, LGBTQ folks, there's, there's a lot of ways to think about how we represent our community. And it's, although the focus is on municipal politics, it's not just about running for office, because there are lots of ways to contribute to the community, contribute at the municipal level through boards and committees. And there will also be a, a business component because, of course, these issues are important to local businesses too. So there'll be a couple of people uh, more representing the business community on the on the panel that we have that evening. So really, it's a year out from, from the municipal election. What can we do to encourage a broader range of people to get involved for the betterment of the, everybody in the community. And I think it's safe to say that when you see some your own self represented on a panel uh, or, or a group or a committee or a police department, for instance, you're, you're probably more apt to, to think that that's an attainable goal for yourself as well. Yeah, I think that's an excellent idea. I mean, we're, we hear it all over the place. Representation matters on a bunch of different levels. Okay, so what are you hoping we in the audience might glean from the discussion? And especially we who are not people of, of color or of those, uh, those groups. I think it works on a couple of levels. Once, one is simply to get us talking about it, right? The October issue of The Advocate raised a lot of these questions. Just the idea of we take for granted that council is set up a certain way or committees or boards or businesses. But really, is that the way they have to be set up? You know, for instance... Council meets in the daytime almost exclusively. Well, if you have a regular nine-to-five job, that already discounts you. For some people, salary might be an issue. It's, it's not a bad salary for this area, but it's really pretty much a full-time commitment, even though it's billed as a part-time job. So one is really to kind of get those some of those barriers out in the open, start talking and thinking about them, because like I say, there's nothing... Uh, written in stone about the way we do things now. So is there, are there structural things that could happen to include, to uh, encourage more people to get involved? So that's one thing. And the other thing I, I think is probably just to get more people thinking about maybe seeing themselves in those roles. And if it's not the big commitment of running for council, maybe it is serving in another way. Business people know that the more you look like the community you serve, the better you do as a business. And there's a there's a really a, almost a moral imperative when you look at government or serving the public in that respect that you need to reflect your community if you're going to serve it properly and across all those kinds of diversity. Okay, we'll see you on uh, October 28th. Thanks, Nancy. Great. Well, thank you. And we hope to see a lot of local folks there. Diversity in Municipal Politics, a panel discussion is scheduled for Thursday, October 28th at the Pie-Eyed Monk in Lindsay. Start time is 6.30 p.m. and the discussion is expected to run until 8 p.m. Now it is free to attend, but there is a cap on the number of people who can attend and you must pre-register. 
You can do that at eventbrite.com and in the search bar, type Lindsay Advocate Diversity in Municipal Politics. Now, aren't you glad this is a podcast? Just in case you need to hit pause and hear those details again. My name is Rebecca Reeds, now living in Toronto and working as a stand-up comedian. But my hometown is Lindsay, and you are listening to the Advocate Podcast, stories from Kawartha Lakes. It's back, not quite the way it was in 2019, but better than it was last season and the one before that. NHL hockey resumed this week with actual human beings in the arenas watching. So a more promising, more hopeful season, especially if you're a Leafs fan, and I know you outnumber me and my appreciation of all things Canadiens and Kawartha Lakes. In fact, the season kicked off with the Buds playing my Habs earlier this week. Owen Hargrave was watching from his home in Cameron. You'll remember our conversations with Owen on this program. He has his own hockey analysis show on YouTube. Owen is here with me now. Uh, Hey, Owen, how are you? Good. Okay, Owen, let's talk uh, not just hockey. Let's talk about your Leafs and where you see them this season based on that small sampling uh, of what you saw earlier this week. Well, right now um, they got Matthews injured for a week. He's at least going to miss three games, but um, he should be back soon. But I think they're going to be going um, anywhere between third and second in the division. Are you, uh, I got to ask you, Owen, are you just kind of waiting for me to to, uh, to trash talk you because my Habs beat your team in the uh, in the playoffs in game seven last, uh, last season? Are you just bracing yourself for that? Well, it's a little obvious now that they um, – didn't perform good after the fourth game. That's spoken like a true hockey analysis person. Okay, there are people in the stands now, Owen, who are watching in uh, in in the actual arena. For you, how has that changed your TV hockey watching experience? Even though you're watching it at home on your TV in, in Cameron. Like last night, um, Justin Hall he blocked a shot that was about to go in, and the whole place just went crazy. He just saved a goal and. If he didn't do that, the game would have been tied. Last year when they had just the things on the seats, they had that small like fake crowd, but that was nothing compared to the normal crowd. And you used to be able to hear all the people like yelling at each other in the game, but now you can just barely hear that. Hmm. And it's kind of cool last year. You could hear like them, hey, 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 and like all those noises. But now since the crowd's back, they're so loud the whole game. Oh my! So it actually sounds like the, the 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 fans in the audience have taken away a little bit of uh, the good parts of the hockey watching experience for you in some ways. Yeah, I really think that the Islanders are going to go far in the playoffs. The last three years, they've made it to the semifinals, and they had their um, captain injured last year, and they were really close from making it to the finals. You were figuring on the Leafs making the finals this year, or? Uh, are are you open to the possibility that they might not make the finals? They probably won't. It depends what they do at the trade deadline, though. 
I got to ask you, Owen, this is much different than it was last season. Uh, you know, you're back at school for one thing. What does hockey mean to you now, especially compared to what it was last year? Just watching it and, and being able to cheer on your team and, and analyze the team. What, what does all that mean for you right now? Well, um, last night the game was on pretty late and I'll probably have to be getting used to that. But um, <laughs> You got to get up and go to, to a regular school now. Yeah. And yesterday at school, I was wearing my jersey and my socks and my hat and everything for the first game. That wasn't even close to all my stuff, but they're like, holy, that's a lot of leaf stuff. That must be all of it. I'm like, no, I got like five more sweaters, 10 more pairs of socks, five other shirts. And no, nobody believed me. I said the day before, I'll wear all leaf stuff and nobody believed me. And you were able to show up and prove it to them, and you didn't have to do it on a Zoom call. You did it in person. Yeah. <laughs> this is great, Owen. Thanks for this. My name is Owen Hargrave. I am from Cameron, and you're listening to The Advocate Podcast, stories from Kortha Lakes. Go Leafs, go! At the top of the show, you met Doug Patterson, descendant of George Laidlaw, the Scottish-born pioneer grain merchant who played a major role in developing the area around the northern part of Corth Lakes, and who is arguably best known as the man who also commissioned the construction of some three kilometers of stone wall fences along Balsam Lake Road. Doug is now the official owner, along with his wife, and the de facto caretaker of George's Fort Ranch. I spoke to him. Uh, Doug, that is not George, near the famous fence about its significance to the community and his family. So this part on the right here is original. You can see the rebuild that we did in here, and that's original over there. Um, you can also see, if you look, you see that vertical seam there? Yes. You, so that was a gate. This was actually a sheep pen, uh, a weighing station, uh, on the, just on the other side of that. And that wall there was added later. At what point in, in your life of walking up and down here did you stop and really look at the fences versus just seeing them, that you saw something that other people wouldn't? Yeah, I don't know. It certainly wasn't when I was younger. As my dad used to come out here and, and, and work on them, and, and I had no interest at all. Um, when I used, did that change? Uh, that changed probably, probably maybe about when I had kids, so that would have been 30 years ago. And, uh, and I think you... I, I, at that point, I started really seeing the importance of, and, the, and the uniqueness of what we had. And, and my friends would come up here and, and just people around, and they'd say, this is an amazing place. But because I lived here my whole life, I kind of thought like, well, kind of probably everybody has something like this. I mean, it didn't occur to me when I was younger to think how unique it, and special it was. A fellow named John Shaw Remington is the top guy in Canada. And he approached us um, one day and said, could I do a seminar up here? And what I'll do is I'll, I'll rebuild, say, 10 feet of your wall. Um, you provide drinks and lunch and, uh, and a tour. And then um, and, uh, and I'll charge the participants, but we'll give you 10 feet of new wall. And, and we thought, okay, well, this is great because for me to build 10 feet of wall, that's a massive job. And uh, so that really got things going for me. And, uh, <clears throat> and then at that point, we thought, okay, well, if we were to take John get John and some of his, uh, some of his other uh, uh, dry stone wall uh, fellows and ladies um, and, and hire them. And we coordinate the project. We work on the project. My brother-in-law, Cam, is fantastic at it. Um, and we hire a local kid usually to help us just crush stone and do things like that. We can build 
uh, sections of wall, like substantial sections, because we have well over 2,000 feet of wall here, probably 2,500 feet of wall. Along this whole stretch here on both on sides? On the property, on both sides and inside the property, yeah. The only part that was built, we believe, uh, not by George, was on the Mackenzie property. So William Mackenzie had walls built on his property right. down there. and uh, But they're, they're done on the same style. For the layperson who comes by here, we're going, oh, nice, they had a bunch of flat rocks and they just piled them off. At what point did you realize that, no, this is, this is, a, this is an art, this is a craft? Yeah, so very, very young. And I mean, because I would come out here with my dad. You know, he, he tried, but he wasn't particularly good at it. And uh, because it is so difficult. Also, we had books. I mean, we still have—I still have the same books um, on, how and, on how to build on how to build dry stone walls. And and you just leaf through those, and it's and is you know could be a 50, 60 page book on just on dry stone walling techniques. Um, so to give you an example of how complex and how difficult it is. John, who John Shaw Remington is the top guy in Canada. He trains. He's around my age, a little younger, uh, in his 50s. He trains with a lady in England. And uh, she is in her 70s, and she builds walls twice as well as him, twice as fast as him. And he's the best in North America. So that is a huge, it's really an art, and uh, a, a form of art construction. Um, yeah, so I certainly learned that very early on. And, and even today, I, I can build a little part of the wall, stand back and look at it and say, that's horrible. I just hate it. What is it and about? Take it, it? And take it back down again and start again. So what is it? When I look at this wall, it yeah. looks neatly stacked, and I yeah. see some of the stones on top that are on end. So what what do you see that makes a good wall versus just a pile of stones on top of each other? Uh, there's a lot. There's an awful lot. So first of all, it's the same as bricklaying. It's, it's one over two, two over one. Um, no seams. It's incorporating the, you can see the limestone incorporated in with the, uh, with the granite. Very, very difficult to do. It's the, the canter, which is the, uh, uh, the uh, it's wide at the base. It's narrower at the top. Aesthetically looking at it, it's just your eye can tell you that it, that it looks nice. I mean, your, your eye won't lie to you. Why is it important, not just to you, but to this community, that these stone walls remain and not just remain, but they're, that, they're, that people keep them up. This was important to my great-great-grandfather, and it was important to him, and I have a lot of respect for, for him and what, what he did and what he stood for, then I think it's important to me. Plus, it's something that's unique to our family, and it's unique to my kids, and I really want to hand off when I go. I mean, I think every parent does. Every parent wants the best for their kids, and I want to hand off the best I can for my kids, and that would include a dry stone wall that is not ramshackled and fallen down, which is what kind of what we had. Um, the other reason is because the walls were, were half fallen down, they actually look horrible. You're actually better off having no dry stone wall than to have a falling down dry stone wall. We're fortunate enough that probably half of it, we haven't actually rebuilt, we've just repaired. So we're just doing little repairs on the top. But all the different sections of the wall are different. I mean, every year I come up here, uh, there's new sections that I need to work on. I've got three or four sections down here that are in need of repair right now. This is gonna be your permanent home now. What does this fence represent for you in making this your permanent home for you and your family that this is going to be not just your weekend retreat your summer retreat what does this fence mean to you in establishing yourself as a full-time member of this community um, I think it really ties the Laylaw name into the community a lot of people will, will drive up and down here and they'll say this I, I actually drive on this road because I love the beauty of the walls they make me feel good it's a, it's a part of my tradition of coming up to the cottage 
And, uh, and to me, it's a big part of, of what the ranch was. To me, it's a, a lakefront cottage property. But then when you, when you add the walls, when you put the walls in there, it all of a sudden becomes a family heritage spot. Uh, my wife and I both feel we're custodians of this. We don't own this property. This isn't ours. We're just custodians of it for a short period of time, and we want to leave it to the next custodians in the best way possible. And, and that's how I feel. I don't, I don't feel I'm a, I'm a landowner here at all. I'm, I'm just here for a short period of time. My job is to do the best I can with what I've been given. It really is worth the trek to Balsam Lake Drive to see those impressive stone wall fences. Drive slowly when you do. Respect that people do live there. And maybe you'll even see Doug who can expound on their history. You can also reach out to him at thepattersons at rogers.com. You can contact us via our Facebook and Twitter pages. Let us know what you'd like to hear on the show. And since our continued success depends on streams and downloads, please tell others about our program. The theme music you hear on the show is created and performed by Gerald Van Halteren. Great guitar player, great music teacher too. The whole program is made possible because of Ward's Lawyers. If you're looking for a lawyer, Carissa and Jason Ward and their team have you covered. Find them at wardlegal.ca. The Advocate Podcast Stories from Kawartha Lakes is hosted and produced by me, Denny Grignon, who's asking you to please, please heed the advice of our medical experts and do you know what if you haven't already. Please talk to you in two weeks. Thank you.